a couple of months ago, I was in Jimmy John's, which is like the best place to go for lunch when you're by yourself because there's reading material all over the walls. I'm very visual. I love to read. And so it's actually bad to have lunch with somebody because I'm left sitting there watch, reading Warren Buffett quotes about saving money and starting businesses and pithy sayings of common sense and stuff. Well, th- to that day, I went right beside the drink machine. I noticed the sign that said, that said, Lying is not only right, it's also easier. And I remember looking at that going, if only that was like my decision-making process. Like, it, it's hard enough to think, man, I, I want to do what's right in this circumstance, but the idea that, well, easier, we, we, if we just all did the easier thing, then we would all end up doing the right thing. I was thinking about that because we often think, well, it's, it's common sense, we know it's right and wrong, and we know that it's easier, so how come the common sense, moral, and easier thing is actually not the thing that we end up doing? Voltaire said common sense is actually not so common, but I feel like common sense is common as long as I'm thinking about somebody else and not about myself, not about my own life. It's easy to look at somebody else's life and go, oh, this is what they should do. This, this is the way they should go. Oh, yes, don't get a tattoo on your face and all of those kinds of things. We look at other people and go, it's easy to figure out their decisions. But then when it comes to my own life, then it becomes, there's something else that's going on. There's something else going on in that, that decision-making process. It's not just, well, what's the right and wrong thing to do here? And not just, what's the easier thing to do? It shows up in things like an argument with my wife. Which it, it can be hard, maybe you're like me, it can be hard to think, what were we fighting about anyway? All I remember is I was technically right about something. And I was unwilling to give on anything else. You see that, that we think, well, it's common sense, it's right and wrong, those decisions are easy. But when it comes to my own life, there's something else happening. There's something else that makes it so hard to walk with God, to go in the direction that I know I need to go, to make the decisions that I know I need to make. So today we're going to look at a story that kind of fleshes out what is it that's going on that keeps me from making those decisions that I know I need to make, from making those apologies I know I should make. What is it that keeps me from doing the right and easy thing? Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to read chapters, we're going to be in chapters 18 and 19 today. We've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel. First, we saw the beginning of the book is about the, the call and life and ministry of Samuel. Then the, this, then the second part is about Saul, Israel's first king with so much promise. And now we're in the part where it's now Saul versus his rival David. We're looking at Saul versus David. God has rejected Saul as king, anointed David as king, and now Saul is still the king, and David is serving in his house. And this is the dynamic that we're looking at. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. This comes right after the story of David, or God delivering Israel through David from their enemy Goliath. Verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you will show us clearly the danger that we all face, just like Saul, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, this comes on the heels of David defeating Goliath. Remember last week we looked at, this wasn't David's great strategy, and if everybody else had just realized what a powerful weapon a sling was, then everybody would have been able to defeat the giant. This was God delivering Israel through the foolishness of a little boy with some stone and a sling. And so the, the scene ends with David standing in front of Saul with the head of Goliath in one hand. And Saul says, who is your father? What is your family? Then this story picks up, and it starts with Jonathan and David. And there are people in our culture that argue that this is actually the first example of Jonathan and David who were lovers, which is just a totally false interpretation of Scripture. If you hear somebody throw that out, that's just total junk. What's actually happening here is Jonathan is saying, I am loyal to you, David. This is a momentous moment. If this doesn't happen, then Jonathan and David become rivals. If this doesn't happen, then Jonathan and David will go to war. Because you see, Saul's the king, and it is expected that his son will become king next. But we already know that God has anointed David. And Jonathan looks on it, and in this, in this pivotal moment, instead of choosing David as his rival and saying, let's go to battle, he instead hands over everything he has and makes a covenant with David. This is this moment. If this doesn't happen, then David's kingship gets called into question. He takes his robe and he takes his tunic and he takes his sword and he takes his bow, takes his belt and he gives it all to David and says, David, I am promising my loyalty to you in this moment. So this becomes a huge deal in the history of Israel that David was not a usurper who goes and steals something that doesn't belong to him, that God has given it to him and even the next king recognizes what God's doing. So Jonathan recognizes what's happening, but then... We see Saul's fear. Saul begins to be jealous because he sees, wait, David, David might be my rival. David is the one that killed Goliath. When we go off to war, David is the one that leads the soldiers in battle. This song that the women sang wasn't some kind of derision of Saul. They weren't making fun of him. It was a typical thing in, in poetry. They would, they would say something, and then the very next line, they would just heighten it and make it bigger. So they were just saying, look at what Saul has done and look at what David has done. It wasn't David is 
better than Saul. It was just this song, but Saul interprets it with jealousy and says, what more can he get but the kingdom? The passage says, a harmful spirit from the Lord. We've talked about that earlier in the series. What does that mean? What does that mean? The meaning of that is that if God withdraws his spirit from Saul, which God has already done, then that is where a harmful spirit comes in. But it, it's an also a recognition that God's in control of what's happening to Saul. It, God is in control of what's happening to Saul. And so Saul tries to kill, pin David to the wall. The story's going to say this twice, but Saul's serious now. Saul tries to kill David. Verse 12 says, But Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. This, this reality, the presence of God, becomes a fearful thing for Saul. He's afraid of the one who has the Spirit. So it says that he sent David away thinking, oh, let's let the Philistines take care of him. But Saul leads the soldiers in battle and they go out to victory after victory. And so David's fame grows and it says all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And so Saul sees this is my rival. And not only has Jonathan moved his allegiance to David, but now Israel's moving its allegiance to David. And so Saul says, do you want my older daughter? David just humbly Do you want my older daughter in marriage? Maybe this can fix it by you marrying my daughter, then you'll be loyal to me. And David just humbly says, who am I that I should do that? Who am I and what is my family that I should become the king's son-in-law? And so then Saul goes, okay, and then he marries his daughter off to another man. But then Saul discovers that his younger daughter has fallen in love with David and thinks, let's make a trap out of this. And so he says, David, go and kill the Philistines. Tell him that you can become the son-in-law if you go and kill a hundred Philistines. Saul, it says Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Well, David goes and kills 200 Philistines. Because he, he wants to be the, the son-in-law. There seems to be some love between David and Saul's daughter Michael. And so David goes and kills 200 Philistines. And then Saul realizes that he's kind of trapped. So he gives his daughter in marriage to David. And this is what it says in verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. This is a pivotal verse. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So then Saul takes a couple of more attempts to try and kill David, but what he ends up finding is that Jonathan has turned and given his loyalty over to David. Jonathan confronts his dad and says, why are you doing this? David is loyal to you and God has delivered us through David's hand. Saul listens to Jonathan, takes an oath and says, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord, a harmful spirit again from the Lord, came on Saul as he was sitting in his house while David was playing the lyre. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. So he's, Saul promises to Jonathan, no, I'm not going to try and kill him. And then he goes ahead and does it anyway. Then in a Then in like a fourth attempt on his life, Saul says, hey, what if we use my daughter-in-law 
or I'm sorry, would have used my daughter to kill David. And so he sends his men to go and get him so that Saul can kill David. But Michael, Saul's daughter, has sworn transitioned her allegiance over to David and protects David by saying, no, he's sick. David slips away. She puts this uh, this object, it's kind of unclear what the word is, but some kind of a household god she may have had or an idol. She puts something in the bed to look like David. And so when Saul finally gets there, he realizes, no, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? So Saul's daughter has now transferred her allegiance over. And then in the final scene, David flees to Samuel and says, Samuel, look at all that Saul has done to me. And then Saul begins sending his servants to try and kill David in that city. But every time that they do, they begin prophesying as God's Spirit comes on them so that they prophesy. And finally, Saul goes to Naoth at Ramah, verse 23. It says, but the Spirit of God came even on him and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? So what happens in this scene is not only has Saul's family now turned against him, preventing him from attacking David, but even even God has now turned away from Saul and doing whatever it takes to protect and defend David. So what we have in this story is the allegiance of Jonathan going to David and Saul setting his mind and setting his en- uh, David up as his enemy. As Saul gets increasingly out of control and everybody makes the choice and goes over to David. And so I want to show you three lessons here from this passage. One, in this crisis, Saul chose God, his own pride over God's presence. In this moment, in this crisis, Saul chose his own pride over God's presence. When we look at chapter 18, verse 28 and 29, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Here we see the dangerous pride in Saul's life that sets the course of everything else that's going to happen. Saul's loyalty was not to God's presence. It was actually to his own kingdom, to his own success, to doing things his own way. That was his only loyalty. And so Saul, this this is the thing that blows my mind. Saul realized where God's presence was and says, I want nothing to do with that. It's his pride that's so dangerous in this moment. I began by talking about what is it that thing when we know the right thing to do and we know the easier thing to do, what is it that takes us down such a dangerous path in our marriage and in our work? What's that thing that takes us down such a dangerous path personally? We see it here in the life of Saul that it's his pride that sets him off on that path where he can't see anything else, he's blind to everything else except, I have a kingdom and I must keep it. Saul's only loyalty was to his own kingdom, even though he realized actually God's kingdom is now going on and it's going off in a different direction. Saul sets that kingdom and sets that king as his great enemy. And this is a lesson that Israel's going to need to hear. And going to need to know because it's a thing that keeps coming up in Israel's history. Every time they reach this crisis point, the people of Israel end up only, only serving their own kingdoms in their own ways. It's the thing that we see in the life of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who wanted God's laws just so they could get their own kingdom. They were following God's laws 
doing all of the right things, but not because they loved God and wanted to serve Him and wanted to see His kingdom come. It's because they wanted, well, if we follow the law well enough, then we can drive out the Romans we'll have our own kingdom. We, Joshua, when he confronted the people, he said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's this constant refrain through Scripture of this choice. My kingdom or God's kingdom? Am I going to chase my own ways, my own success, doing my own thing? Which is the thing that ends up destroying Saul here. I'm reminded of a story from World War II. Of, uh, the, of the companies that a lot of us know, where we buy gas, we get oil, companies like Exxon, BP, Amco, Sunco, all those companies at one point had been wrapped up under one umbrella called Standard Oil. And during World War II, Standard Oil served both sides of the war. They played both angles because their only allegiance was not to winning, was not to freedom, it was because they wanted to win. And so what they ended up doing is they would make air, this additive that had to be used in aircraft fuel and they would secretly sell that to both sides. Because for them, they didn't care who won as long as they won, as long as they survived, as long as they went on. And that's what's happening here in Saul. Saul's like, I don't care about anything except for me winning. The danger to us, to you and to I is... Will we stop paying attention to God's presence and instead chase our own kingdoms, doing things our own way? I mentioned earlier, it's those fights that we get in and we go, I can't remember what it was about. I just remember I was right about something. And I was digging my heels in, unwilling to give in. When I hear about somebody else's marriage, I go, why would you do that? When I hear about somebody else's life, I go, why would you do that? Why would you, why is it so important for you to be right and to win? But then when it's in my own heart and when it's in my own life, I realize actually, I'm that guy who's so wedded to winning to my own kingdom that I'm willing to ignore what God wants to do in this. So the danger to us is, will we be like Saul who chooses our own pride over God's presence? The second lesson we learn from this passage is we see that David shows us what grace and truth look like. David shows us what grace and truth look like. You see, when we look at moment after moment in David's life, he started this story holding Goliath's head in one hand. And as the story goes on, more and more people find themselves loyal to and following David. But David never makes his enemy his own enemy. Saul sets himself up as an enemy, but David says, I will not be an enemy to my enemy. Instead, I'm going to serve him. Instead, I will join his family. I'm going to do good to Saul, even though I could take this kingdom by force. You see, in moment after moment, David becomes more powerful, but he never uses it to steal the kingdom. Because he says, this isn't mine. This isn't mine to, to, to uh, grab onto. David doesn't use his gifts for his own advantage. Instead, he uses it to bless and to serve Saul. Yes, sometimes he has to run. Yes, there are times where he's like, this guy is trying to pin me to the wall. I have to leave. But time after time, he comes back and serves Saul. And we will see that in the rest of his life. That David, when everybody says, hey, you can take the kingdom, you can kill him. He says, no, I will not raise my hand against God's man. David shows us what grace and truth looks like because he continually pursues and serves Saul, even though Saul has set himself up as an enemy. 
The reason that I think that he does that is because David knows that God is with him. Everybody knows that God is with him, and David knows that God's with him. And so that means his identity and his future are secure. David's identity and future are secure because the Lord is with him. And so serving Saul does not threaten the very thing that guarantees everything that he's going to get. It does, that the very thing that secures his future is not threatened by Saul's spears. And so David shows us grace and truth by going back time after time, pursuing Saul and serving Saul. It reminds me of the story of uh, Corey Ten Boom tells about. Corey Ten Boom was a little girl, and she and her sister were put in a concentration camp. Didn't mean to use two World War II stories today, but she was put in a concentration camp with her sister. And they were Christians, and she went moment by moment with her sister until her sister died by her side there in a concentration camp. And she survived. And when she got around, she got out, she would go around sharing stories, sharing the story of what God had done in her and sharing how God was using her to forgive her enemies. But then one day after she spoke, a man came up to her and stuck out his hand and said, do you remember me? I was one of the guards in your concentration camp but I've become a Christian and found God's forgiveness. And I'm thankful you can forgive me too. And she said, in that moment, I realized, wait, this is the guy that killed my sister. This is the guy that killed my sister. How can I stick my hand out to him? How can I stick out my hand and shake his hand? And she realized in that moment, I have the choice. Am I going to stick out my hand in welcome and forgiveness to this man who has sought my forgiveness? Or am I going to withhold it and be be crushed by bitterness? And that's the picture that we see in David's life. Grace and truth that says, Though you've wronged me, I'm going to keep serving. I'm going to still reach out. Because David's life was faced in a Godward direction and he knew that God was with him. So the invitation to us is to, like David, begin to live with grace and truth, saying, yes, people wrong us. Yes, sometimes we have to flee. Yes, sometimes things have to change. But we're going to continually, in grace and truth, reach out our hand wanting to do good to those that call themselves our enemies? Are we going to be the ones that reach out our hands, not using our own gifts and freedoms for our own use, but instead using them for other people? Will we be the kind of people that show grace and truth like David? That say, my freedom and my gifts are for others, not for me. And then the third lesson that we learn from this passage is Jonathan chooses God's presence and God's man over his own kingdom. You see, this story is not actually about David and Saul. This is a story about Saul and Jonathan. Saul is the one that says, my kingdom, my way forever. And Jonathan says, I will give it all up because I recognize God's presence in God's man, and I want that. Jonathan is the true hero of this story who says, I will make a loyal covenant with David. Not because I have to preserve my own kingdom, but because I trust that the only real kingdom there will be is here with David. And so Jonathan gives it all up, and his loyalty will one day cost him everything. For him to be loyal to David means that one day Jonathan is going to have to die so David can become king. David is miles and miles away. David has nothing to do with that, deeply grieving his death. But Jonathan's loyalty is going to cost him everything. And in this moment, he says, I'm okay with that. I'm going to give up everything. Because I believe this is God's man and this is where God's presence is. But we see that one day that that Jonathan's line continues because when David hears that Jonathan has a son, 
David goes and brings him into his household saying, this is the one I made a covenant with. This is the one who expressed his loyalty to me, so I'm going to be loyal to him and to his family forever. Jonathan chooses God's presence and God's man over his own kingdom and ends up finding a legacy that Saul couldn't get by trying to pin David to the wall. You see, God's presence is with God's man. And Jonathan says, that's what I want. And so this is a passage inviting us to be like Jonathan, not like Saul. Our temptation, if you're like me, is to go through life saying, what can I get? What plans do I need to follow? How can I make this happen? If you're like me, your temptation is to get anxious, to get angry, to begin possessing everything in the world, saying, no, I have to make this happen. This is my one shot. I can't let this go. And so pride takes over and we begin choking the life out of our marriages and our kids and our relationships and all these things because we cannot let go of our pride. We are the ones that are like Saul. And the invitation is to be like Jonathan, who says, no, I want God's presence. I want God's man over my own kingdom. So how do we get there? If you're like me and this passage condemns and just says, look at how much like Saul you are. The one with the temper. The one with so much worry. The one who chokes the life out of everything because of your own pride, chasing your own things and in your own way. Where's the good news in this passage? The the good news in this passage is that one day a king would come. One day a king would come who would lay down his own life so that we could have his kingdom. One day there's he would come and he, when faced with the religious leaders in the court, he would say, my kingdom is not of this world. And he would lay down his life in our place. One day a king would come that's living with grace and truth because one day he would give us God's presence and he would give us a place in his kingdom. So this story can become our story as we repent of sin and trust in Christ. That's not just the story of how do we begin, but it's also the story, how do we, be, how do we overcome the pride that promises to choke out our lives? How do we, how do we like, get past this pride that begins to grip my heart and change and choke it out? The story of the gospel is both for the start of the Christian life and the continual part of the Christian life. That if we're the ones that are facing the danger of pride that will one day ruin us. The only way beyond that is repentance and faith. The story of the Bible is God who made the world and He made it good and He looked out on it and said it is very good. And He said, He said, You will be my little kings and I will be the great king. And we said, No, we don't want anything to do with that. We will live our own way. We will eat the fruit that we want to eat. We will do the things that we want to do. The Bible says that God will one day crush those enemies in the same way that he would one day crush Saul. But the Bible says instead of leaving us that way, God came and lived the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, so that all who repent of sin and trust in Christ are freed from the consequences of that, but also increasingly the power of that pride. And so we go, oh yes, Joe, I've trusted in Christ. What does this have to do with the pride that grips my heart? The point of this is just like at the beginning, when we give up pride and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our place. That's the way we continually battle pride and see victory over pride. So that we, instead of pride becoming the thing that grips everything, instead we go, God, I realize that I so often chase my own kingdom, doing my own thing and in my own way, and I just ask you to come along for the ride. God, I'm the one that 
is willing to give up everything to build my own kingdom. And my heart just increasingly goes back there. The promise is that those who, are, who continually repent of sin and trust in Christ begin to be freed increasingly from that pride that promises to choke all those things out. So that instead of being controlled by our pride, facing the judgment of Saul, instead we find the life that Jonathan, and the legacy that Jonathan found. Jonathan who chose God's presence and God's man over his own kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I pray that you will let it sink deeply into our hearts. I pray that we will heed this warning, that pride promises destruction, and you call us to instead turn and trust Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.